Hey, welcome back to Noggin Notes. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I'm the host. And this episode involves my interview with Zach Kumler, who is advocating quite heavily for military veterans, he being one himself. And he's helping connect veterans with jobs and employers who need employees with veterans who need those jobs. He also wears a couple of different hats, and I definitely mentioned that in the podcast, and uh, he explains that. But one of the really cool endeavors that he does is he helps veterans with their mental wellness uh, following their separation from the military. And he does that in a variety of ways, not the least of which is through his organization called Woobies United. That's W-O-O-B-I-E-S, united.com. And you can check them out. The podcast, as usual, is sponsored by Audible. If you have not yet discovered audiobooks or audio content, you really should. Go to audibletrial.com slash notes for a free 30-day trial. And in that 30-day trial, you get a free audiobook to download. And you get to keep it even if you quit your trial. Audibletrial.com slash notes. Get your free 30-day trial. And uh, I don't think you'll quit. I think like most people, you'll end up sticking around because their audio selection is really unmatched. audibletrial.com slash notes, And also, as always, we're sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, which is my company that I co-own in northern Nevada. We do outpatient mental health counseling, and you can find out more at zephyrwellness.org, as well as on our YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook channels. That's it for me. Listen to my interview now with Zach. Enjoy. Well, thanks again, listening audience, for coming back and downloading our content. Uh, I like to thank our listening audience as often as I can because it's always humbling that people would choose to spend their time listening to what I have to say. <laughs> uh, this week we have with us uh, Zach Kumler, who is, uh, he, he wears a lot of hats too, uh, kind of like I do, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Sure. Go ahead. I'm Zach Kumler. I am. I already said that. (laughs) I am the CEO of Alpha Roster, which is a uh, veteran recruiting and staffing agency. We focus on veterans, first responders, and their families and getting them back to work with meaningful employers. Uh, I am also a co-founder of a nonprofit called Woobies United at Woobies United on Instagram. Uh, We focus on uh, taking veterans out and giving them meaningful experiences, whether it be, uh, you know, writing uh, a horse for, you know, 15, 20 miles pushing cattle or hunting an elk, uh, in Idaho or deer or anything like that. We focus on mainly, uh, hunting and hiking and getting folks out into the outdoors to deal with mental health. And that concludes our podcast. Uh, <laughs> the end. Zach and I uh, go back several years. We played baseball together and, um, we had not seen each other for quite some time, and then um, you reached out and wanted to connect over this mental health topic because you do a lot of work with veterans, and uh, I work in the mental health realm, and so we met for uh, Happy Hour Tacos at Great Basin Brewing Company. And yeah. um, that's the first time we've seen each other in a couple of years, right? Yeah, almost like four or five years. Yeah. Um, but I was stoked, and I had no idea that you had been doing all the stuff that you do in your world. And I want you to do a quick rundown of because you, you've like been to D.C. You talk to our our elected officials on a federal level. You work with a lot of um, important people, and uh, I I think it's important to paint this picture because for the listening audience. Um, what I try to do with this podcast is make it encouraging and inspiring. Um, we obviously touch on serious topics, but what we want to do is, um, let people know that 
average random folks. You're from Fernley, Nevada. You know, it's like a town of 20, 25,000 <laughs> people uh, and growing. But um, you went into the military, you did your thing, you came back out, and you're like lighting the world on fire in so many ways. And I think there's there's like there's nothing special about us, right? We just, yeah. we just work really hard and we have big dreams and we don't take no for an answer. Yeah. Um, so tell, tell, tell your story if you will. And then I want to get into the, like some of the endeavors. First and foremost, I'm a nineties kid, you know, born in 88. Uh, most of the cartoons I watched were, you know, hero heroes versus villains, Ninja Turtles, street sharks. You know, I love that stuff. So, uh, when I graduated high school, you know, I had a gleam in my eye and I was ready to help people. I, I've always been that person. I've always wanted to help people no matter what the issue. I just wanted to be there to lend a hand. Uh, I was going to go play college ball, uh, ended up not playing college ball and had to figure out a way f to pay for my education. So I ended up joining the United States military, uh, the army, uh, I was stationed out in Hawaii, deployed to Iraq, uh, you know, fought bad guys, did the whole, uh, you know, uh, combat arms thing and loved it. I loved the army a lot, but, uh, taught me a lot as well about human beings mm -hmm. and, you know, being in another country where you, you are trying to defend someone else's freedom is a huge thing, but you learn a lot about humans as a whole and yourself. Uh, and I thought I learned a lot of good lessons from that. When I transitioned from the military, uh, I started working for big corporations and really focusing on how do I get my brothers and sisters in arms into these good jobs. Uh, so I built a company around that. Like uh, a lot of veterans get out and they have no idea where to go, how to uh, leverage their skills. So I built a company around that. Uh, and then I was out on a turkey hunt with uh, a couple of my buddies. It's been a while. I, I, would, I just needed some friends in my life. I was pretty much isolated. I had a roommate that we'd hang out with. Uh, but we went on this turkey hunt and it brought everyone together. Everyone was kind of in different places in their life. We completely got skunked, didn't shoot a single turkey. We stalked turkeys all day long, walked a lot, put some hard work in. But uh, at the end of the day, nothing happened. But we spent four days in the woods trying and learning about other people's experiences, uh, our friends even, that we haven't seen in years. And to be able to connect on a different level, started talking about family, where we wanted to go. Uh, that meant something to me. And I said, what if we can replicate this on a larger scale for uh, more veterans to deal with PTSD and stress and anxiety and to actually have a conversation around it because my generation, uh, you know, you get back from war, you don't talk about what happened. You, you're just shut off from that. It's kind of, uh, everyone says, go see mental health, but you don't go see mental health. Mm. And I started to, and it opened me up to thinking, wow, it's amazing that uh, I can go talk to someone and just having the uh, anonymity between myself and the other person I was talking with made it a lot easier and more comfortable for me to say, Hey, these are the crazy things that happened to me. Does this make me a bad person? Does this, you know, right. and that helped me define who I was and the direction I was going to go. And then we ended up leading into Whoopies United. And I've met so many people through this journey already that, uh, have seen their, you know, brothers and sisters in arms kill themselves, take their lives. And this year I've lost two. And it wasn't, you know, everyone's aware of it. You see the 22 a day, you know, 22 push-ups for suicide, all that stuff. But we've gotten to the point where how do we prevent this thing? Like you, it's preventable, mm -hmm. but how do we do that? And that has come in the form of me pulling in other veterans and saying, hey, let's sit down and do something different and get out into the world. You had your own struggles uh, coming back. You, you referenced it just now when you said, you know, I went in and talked to somebody about it. Um, 
I want you to tell that story um, because you, you and I were on your podcast just a little bit ago, <laughs> and um, and, I, and I think it's refreshing to hear somebody open up and be vulnerable and say, "Yeah, I was struggling, and I and I got help, and now I'm I'm not struggling anymore." And and we always like to hear those stories, but also wanted to ask. I think about like my grandfather fought in World War II, and he never talked about it. And lots of people don't kill themselves because of their psychological struggles, but a lot of people do struggle. And and I'm trying to I'm trying to wrap my head around the generational differences um, between and among you know the the World War One, World War Two, uh, Korea, Vietnam, um, OIF, OEF stuff. Um, how how is it that we that this is just a new thing too? Like it seems new to this these generations, the last twenty years or so. We're like, go go get yourself some counseling as opposed to before it was like, eh. And and I don't know if, if it's worse now, quote unquote, um, or if it's just different or maybe we're we're more aware. I so speak a little bit to that as, as well as like tell your tell your own story if you would. Yeah, sure. Uh and I want to start by saying I, I'm only open to talking about it now. It took a lot. It took a lot for me to okay. open up about it uh, and talk with my talk about uh, my struggle with uh, antidepressants, uh, you know, pills that I was given through the military, a lot of that stuff. And I found a need to talk about it because no one was. Mm. Um, when I was deployed in Iraq, you know, we, we had our bumps and bruises getting blown up, you know, houseborn IEDs pulling, you know, bodies on bodies out of homes where they're just shredded into pieces. That was tough. Uh, but I had prepared myself for that. I had prepared myself going into that uh, deployment, and I don't think a lot of people do. And I, uh, I just how so? Mm -hmm. uh, when I went, you know, everyone watched the war movies. When you're at MEPS joining the military, you're watching Black Hawk Down. So you're like imagining what it could be and some of the mm -hmm. the possible mm -hmm. scenarios. And I'm one of those guys like. When I'm at home, I'm thinking of you practiced in advance in your head. Exactly. Yeah. I, 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 I go and act it out in my head. How would I deal with the situation? Everyone's done it as a kid. Like if a burglar broke in, yep. you go to the home alone scenario, right? <laughs> You're like, I'm going to put some marbles on the floor and some jacks and blah, blah, drop a paint can. on. <laughs> and for me, that was, that's how I deal with a lot of things. That's how I get ahead of how I'm going to feel about a lot of things. So I took that and started replaying it through my mind. Even when I got there, it was completely different than I thought it was going to be. I thought we were going just fighting these bad guys in this bad country where everyone sucks. The people are awful. They weren't. The people there were just like us. They want to you know, go to their job or make their wage if they're working or attend to their crops and, and stuff like that uh, and stay out of it. They, they wanted to, mm. they, you know, I think all of us, you know, we like to drink beer or have a good time, see our family, th that community feel. And I think by uh, going over there, I ended up having... Uh, I'd say after month two, I kind of had to shut those emotions down, uh, kind of get rid of fear and panic and stuff like that. Cause there's, if you have that inside of you, it doesn't provide you any good. That's how people get killed. That's so, hold on a sec. Cause that's, that's really interesting to me. Cause I, so I'm an emotional functioning guy and, and I teach that emotions are adaptive to the world around you. So fear is one of those that's, that prepares you for, uh, a threat or a danger, right? Why would you want to shut that off if all you're facing is threats and danger? Yeah. So for fear for me, like threats and dangers are one thing. Uh, I think that's where that military preparedness comes from. Uh, talking frontal lobe, like you're just jumping right into how you would regularly react to something. And my reactions are good. That's trained on. That's something that I have developed a muscle memory for, but fear 
when you get blown up and we call in the military, the butthole pucker factor, <laughs> like, you know, how bad was it? I get that when a highway patrolman is behind <laughs> me on the highway. That's exactly it. You know, when you're in Iraq driving over each crack or just driving through a pile of trash, you know, it's scary because any one of those could be an ID could detonate and kill you. Improvised explosive device. We try to uh, explain our acronyms. Uh, yeah, on this ab- podcast, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, found that fear for me would constantly get me like in a panic mode instead of being calm. Because when you're calm, you're able to react to things. You don't, you know, shoot innocent civilians. You don't, you know, frag out someone, you know, for no reason. You're not on edge. Yeah. So you have to dial that in and have a more smooth and rounded out uh, way to deal with things. And fear just wasn't one of those things. It keeps you on alert. And I think a lot of that alertness comes from our training. So you still had that, but um, you were able to check things to the side. Mm, okay. That makes sense. Uh, and then how you, you explained before, so I'm not going to be completely ignorant, but how does that not translate when you're not in combat anymore when you come home? It's tough. So I feel like, uh, when I got out of the military, the hardest thing that I was coping with at the time was I'm not going to do anything cool again. That, What's that mean? That adrenaline rush, you know, from driving 80 miles an hour on a road in Iraq uh, and then, you know, owning the road because that's how you save your life. And then you get back here and probably the most adrenaline rush I'll feel is, you know, going and shooting sometimes or, you know, going and doing a crazy hike or um, you, you turn into an adrenaline junkie almost. And, you know, I'm not hang gliding, gliding or jumping out of airplanes with a parachute or anything like that but a lot of people do that though yeah and i feel like that that rush you lose that and in order to find that rush or that meaning in my life i started a new company that focused Mm, on veterans mm -hmm. that we have a very similar um culture uh with and then with whoobies you know shooting and riding horses riding horses uh, being in control of a live animal or having somewhat control over (laughs) a live animal while uh pushing cattle was one of the craziest things I had ever done. You know, you're riding wow. hard and you're, you know, you get that cowboy phase, you're doing something cool and hard mm-hmm. and tough. And you know, that's, that's what's written on my heart and my values. You know, I like want to be the John Wayne. That's cool. Yeah. That, um, I, you, I've heard that before and I'm, I'm pausing here to, to collect my words because I, I think it, it's been so long since I've heard somebody refer to, um, adrenaline junkie or chasing that, um, adrenaline rush it's been several years and it, and it's, it was a, it was a teenager that I worked with who came from an abusive home. And so when he was always on guard, it's, it's very much PTSD when you're raised in chaos oh, and sure. violence. Right. So, um, you don't, those listening, you don't have to be in combat to get PTSD. Um, you just have to have your life threatened, uh, or someone else's around you. And he was like, yeah, that's why, that's why I stole the car. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Like, and it, it totally made sense. It clicked. Yeah. Right. And that, and then I listening to you describe that now, it sounds very much like what, um, drug users use or why they use to chase the high that they had before. And you're just never going to get another high unless you go higher, which is how people overdose. And so it's like, you need dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit. So how does one teach oneself when one comes back from that, high level of intensity to live a quote unquote normal life. If they're not establishing a company and like chasing different types of adrenaline, um, what, what do you find in your employees when you, when you hire them or when you 
hire them to send them out because they don't all work for you. Um, they go work for other companies. How do you t- talk to them and say, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying and I get why you need this thing. How do you, how do you replace that? Or do you, is it even necessary? It's tough. Uh, camaraderie is one of the big things that you lose when you leave the military because you go back into isolation. A lot of people, you know, I was stationed in Hawaii. I didn't really know anyone from Reno that yeah. was out there. You know, I, I ended up meeting some people, uh, through the folds, but, uh, you get this isolation when you get out, that's very tough to deal with. And so you're constantly looking for people that are similar to you and really it's checking in with people, talking to them, getting to know who they are, where they come from. Um, but when it comes to like losing that adrenaline rush, I don't think you do. It's very tough. And again, we talked about this, uh, the survivors, uh, guilt that I have, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you still get to live life when others, that you know don't. Right. And that was very tough. So I feel it is my duty to live life to the fullest. Uh, when I started chasing my dreams of building a company or uh, working with Woobies, it was really because I felt I had to. Like what else brings purpose to my life and meaning to my life and can show like at least Zach didn't, you know, he didn't die in Iraq. He came home. How did he live his life out? Did I live in fear, being stuck in my room, you know, talking, like right. just not wanting to talk to other people outside of my life, uh, share my experiences with? So I started, uh, luckily I was a recruiter out here after I left. So I still kept in touch with a lot of the people that I worked with. So they had very similar lifestyles. Uh, my buddy Brian, you know, he's been shot twice, uh, you know, lost half his platoon in Afghanistan, you know, dealt uh, with suicide uh, amongst his platoon. And he's a co-founder with uh, me on Woobies. And that's how we found, you know, common ground because not a lot of people go through those things, but by bringing him back into my life and, you know, keeping him in my life, we've been able to talk about it and deal with those things. I appreciate that you said not a lot of people go through those things because a lot of what I say in uh, the clinical world is it's not about the experience. We don't want to do experiential comparisons because no one will ever live someone else's life. Um, I tend to rest on emotions because we all have the same 10 emotions. Um, How do you work through your uh, veteran community for guys who are like non-combat veterans. Cause that's, I know that's a big riff in like in the veteran yeah. community. It's like, there's, there's a little bit of like rub there. It's like, well, you didn't actually serve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but how, how do you find camaraderie with guys who didn't get blown up or gals who, um, didn't have that experience? Speaking the same language, I think is, is big, <laughs> you know, PTSD is one thing. Like there is, uh, you go back to my basic training, there, there was a point where uh, we had to do a urinalysis uh, to test everyone to make sure they weren't doing drugs at basic training mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, they found some hooch in the barracks, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, this is going to sound real bad, but uh, I'm going to throw it out there. I, you had to drink four quarts of water. You had to drink, you have a two quart that you carry around all day. Uh, and this will give you some harsh reality of what the military is. We had uh, about 280 so folks, and maybe 300, uh, in the basic training class that I was in. So you have 300 guys standing outside, drink a two court. You have to pee. They won't let you go pee. You're going to go pee by alphabetical order. All right. Oh man. So I'm, I'm a K, right? (laughs) So I'm in the middle and you had to drink your first two court and hold it over your head to show like, you know, you don't have any droplets on your head or whatever. So you drink the whole thing. Then you had to drink a second two court. 
There's four quarts of water in your body unless yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in less than uh probably like forty five minutes. And I had to pee. <laughs> and I uh I raised my hand. I was like finally like someone's gotta say something about this. I raised my hand. Yes, Private Kumler. Uh drill sergeant, I have to I have to go pee. All right. Can you do it there? I said, I guess so. I peed my pants. Like, I, oh. like what are you going to do? Like, I was so terrified of the drill sergeants and repercussions of what was going to happen that I pissed my pants as a grown-ass man, you know? <laughs> what? What is the per- – why? Why? Why would we do that? Why, why would we do that, right? It's, 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 it's kind of ridiculous. But some of those things from basic training like that, well, I raised my hand again and said, hey, drill sergeant, I peed my pants. He's like, I hope you have enough to ring it out to complete your UA, you know? Mm-hmm. Stupid stuff like that uh, that we deal with in, in the military. Uh, a lot of people go through the same thing. doesn't matter if you're mm-hmm. in combat, not in combat. You're getting woken up. Uh, God knows what time in basic training. Uh, and then that stuff carries over to when you get on the line unit. You deal with a lot of stupid stuff. You deal with suicide, no matter if you're in combat or, you know, people go overseas and they could be a dentist and completely away stripped from their family. Um, don't, don't have the sense of community. Honestly, I think, uh, us combat arms guys, when we were deployed had a little bit better because we were all going through a lot of gnarly stuff at the same time and had that, that camaraderie, but that was uh, your family. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And others that don't still is, that, that mm-hmm. still is very much my family closer to me than most of my blood fam- family. And, uh, we relate on those terms, you know, no matter if you're in the Marine Corps, uh, if you're in the Air Force, Army, Marines, we've gone through a lot of stuff. So to, to be able to look someone in the eyes and be like, you get me, you've yeah. seen a lot of stuff, no matter if you're combat or not, there's a lot that you go through uh, both both ways. And I think that's really unique. Uh, but yeah, just building and knowing that you're going from being 18 years old, a lot of folks join when they're 18, get out when they're 23, 24, 25 and you're going from all I know is either killing people or combat or just being in this really regimented lifestyle into, all right, you're stripped away from all the comfort. You're stripped away from the people you know. You're stripped away from everything you the know. structure, too. Exactly. And then go figure it out. Right. And there's not a lot of ways to, to navigate that once you get out. I, I want to stick just for a second on because that, that's a good segue into what you're doing as an employer recruiter. Or, um, but... I want to stick just for a second on the military experience because this is we, we this podcast is international, not just because it's on the internet, but because we have a following in several different countries. Um, have you interacted with other nations' military personnel, and how are those experiences similar or dissimilar from that of our own in America? Yeah, for the most part, I've only worked with uh, some of the Aussies, Australians. Uh, worked with the Indian Army uh, and some folks all over the place, depending on, you know, what I can and cannot say. Mm-hmm. But, uh, for the most part dealing with them, it's kind of, they can drink beer. That was such a crazy thing to me. We're in Iraq. We get near beer. They send us like this German 0% beer or whatever, which is great. Just being able to have a beer. But a lot of these guys are able to crack a beer overseas and even just something like that. Uh, th- they get a little taste at home and some normalcy huh. where, you know, we're downrange, we're eating MREs and, you know, dying, sweating to death, you know, they just have it a little bit better off. Uh, I think, uh, as opposed to our rules and their communities are very similar, but, uh, I would say there wasn't too many things that were too different about what they do, but we were very much, uh, 
you go fight. These are the things you do daily, uh, regimented, uh, and they're kind of looser <laughs> freely, yeah. you know? So, so you don't you don't suspect that maybe everybody went through the same urinalysis experience or the twenty mile rocks? Yeah, or, I think there's uh, some hazing that goes on there that you know, good or bad. Uh, I have a lot to say on hazing, but uh, there's a lot that I wouldn't consider uh, that now falls under those lines. But uh, yeah, I don't think we internationally have the same standards and stuff. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of changes in today's military. Uh, where they get their cell phones and basic training can can connect with their loved ones. And I oh, think interesting. as much as everyone wants to say back in my day, you know, yep. you didn't have your phone, but we weren't connected. It does feel nice to have that connection. Even if you're just going through basic training, stuff like that. Yeah. We were talking on your podcast about the, the human resources aspect of um, as much as I, and I'll just little soapbox here. I don't, I don't like the term human resources because it, it dehumanizes people as just being resources for a business. Yeah. And, um, the, the idea is that if you have these human resources, you want to keep them well-tuned and you want to have like adequate support for them. Uh, it seems like that's just a no brainer. Like you want your troops to be well maintained, well oiled. And that involves connecting back home. Like it would, of course you want to like go home. Of course you want to like stay plugged in on social media or whatever, but um, you know, maybe we're just still continuing to evolve. Uh, which I guess is our, our segue into what you do as a, as a recruiter now, not for the army, but for businesses, you, you attract veterans who are fresh out of their service and plug them in with jobs who need workers and who are veteran encouraged or veteran friendly. Um, talk about how that works. Yeah. So usually we, and again, it goes back to grabbing them before they isolate themselves, pulling them back into community because, here at Alpha Roster, one of the big things that we do is we find them, we ensure that they're going to have a good resume, uh, make sure that they can get the job in the first place. But we speak their language. We say, hey, this is what this person did. This is what it means to uh, to bring them into your company. The intangibles you're going to get with the veteran, they're showing up on time, they're hardworking, they're driven. You know, you don't get that. A lot of uh, people in just corporate America come in, show up like two minutes ahead of t- when they're supposed to be in Very there entitled all the time and uh, you know, call out sick all the time and all that stuff where we don't, you just mm-hmm. like, you're not used to that. You're used to just going in, you know, to go to sick call in the military was so frowned upon. Like if you had something wrong with you. So when you get out, it's a little bit easier. You don't have to wake up every morning and go on a 10 mile run or anything like mm-hmm. that. Uh, but what we do is we, we get them at, at the point where they're leaving, we pull them back into the folds. We find them jobs. Uh, we help them build their resumes, but it doesn't just stop there. We help them navigate resources around the area. I teach them uh, a lot of times if someone's getting out, I say, hey, did you go do your disability? And, mm-hmm. and most of them are like, no, you know, nothing really happened. I just messed up my knee or my legs. I'm like, just, just go for it. Just go for it. Like, go do the right thing. Tell the truth. Uh, all your medical records are showing whatever they end up with is what they end up with. So we navigate that for them. Uh, the GI bill, a lot of people don't understand the difference between the Montgomery GI bill and the post nine 11 GI bill. We navigate what, what is, that. What is that? Uh, so the Montgomery GI bill will pay for like trade schools. Typically the best way to say it is Montgomery GI bill. The money goes to you. Then you pay the school. 
with the post 9-11 GI Bill, uh, the money goes to the school and it'll pay whatever it costs for your schooling. And then you get uh, a housing allowance on top of that to take okay. advantage of. So for some trade schools and stuff like that, Montgomery GI Bill is better. For uh, traditional schools, you know, you can go through the Yellow Ribbon program as well and go to Stanford and not pay a dime for your four-year degree. Wow. Uh, and it pays for everything. But there's different ways of navigating that. Also, when you're getting out, um, some people, this is the first time they went to college. Luckily, I had some college experience before I joined the military, but I didn't finish my degree. So I knew how to navigate a little bit. What we do is we navigate that. So you want to go into manufacturing. We work a lot in manufacturing. I'm going to tell you, go get a certification. Don't mess with getting your college degree yet. Mm-hmm. Go get a certification, lean manufacturing, 5S, Black Belt, Kaizen. We've worked in these industries enough to know what you can do to help yourself uh, and so that we can show our employees, this is where to, uh, leverage your skills and this is how you grow. And then we teach them then go for the degree. This is what you should go to uh, school for in order to get that degree so that they can make more money in the long, long term. So we're not just a typical like staffing recruiting agency. We'll still staff companies, but, uh, the end state we want is a better life and to grow throughout that entire process to make more money, to become more profitable, to make a better life for yourself. It's mutually beneficial to, exactly. to all parties. And I think that's sometimes it gets lost uh, these days. I don't know what these days means, but um, <laughs> we're most companies and individuals even are just profit driven. And and it's like, I don't care what I do. I just want a paycheck, right? I I just want to pay for my, my rent and my, my family and whatnot. And you're giving meaning and meaningful purpose and experience to both ends of the deal, which I I think is really remarkable. It takes more effort obviously, but it's, I think it's more rewarding in the long run and it's more sustainable that way too. Cause you're not just, you're not just a mill. Exactly. Um, You're, you're actually uh, putting some, some groundwork in for the future and you know with that begets more business down the road exactly um are you finding it difficult these days to recruit people into work because um and and this this time i use these days meaning like um COVID. COVID, <laughs> yeah where we've got you know unemployment checks that are often outpaying the standard wage um, do people want to work Right now, I think people are terrified to work. Uh, Mm. Look at, I mean, there's been a big narrative around, well, everyone else got off, but I'm an essential business and essential worker. So I had to work and like, how dare, like this sucks. I want my time off, you know, and it's that sense of entitlement. Mm. Uh, I have jobs open right now that I can't fill because uh, currently right now it's more lucrative for you to sit at home and collect unemployment than it is for you to work. And I understand there's, there's definitely needs and there's definitely fear there. But at the same time, a lot of employers are changing the way that they do business to ensure that they have a safe workplace. But then there's also employers that are not doing that. Mm. And that's, what's terrifying. People uh, you look at Amazon, for example, they kept operations up. They're going to meet the bottom line. They've been so profitable throughout they this have. entire thing. Yeah. Uh, and employees have been getting sick and shutting down. And you know, th- one dude walked away from his delivery truck in yeah. like Wisconsin or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. it's crazy. The stuff that's going on right now, but I understand there's fear out there, but that fear should be driving you to better employers because there are some terrible employers. We've I've worked with bad employers in the past, and we don't place people there. That's why we focus on finding meaningful employment with companies that actually produce a contribution to society where you can 
go there and have benefits and take care of your family without having to sacrifice who you are as a person. So the market does work. It does. <laughs> it does. It does work. And that's a, a you know, big thing that happened recently is, uh, you know, contraceptives, uh, employers being able to say, Hey, we're going to deny uh, birth control, uh, in, in the workplace. And we're going to be able to deny that. Okay. That's how you're going to run your business, but expect for everyone to flock out of there quickly and go to businesses that are progressing and changing the way, uh, that, I mean, I don't want to point out companies by name, uh, but like if that is your agenda and that's how you're going to change things, you're probably going to go the the way of the dinosaurs. Right, right. So when you're um, when you're seeking these uh, folks to place, what are the criteria that you look for? Just any veteran, any veteran willing, unemployed, needs work, uh, so, new, old. Like, <laughs> so we reach every demographic. Essentially, what we want is veterans to come here with a need, uh, disabled veterans. And uh, let me say this first: is everyone's hiring veterans. Everyone's hiring veterans like me. Hmm. Not a lot of people are hiring the veterans coming from Vietnam because oh, right, they're the right. ones that are on the streets. And honestly, those guys had a, a bad shake. And to go back to uh, the question you asked earlier, how do we have it differently from other generations of war? We've been so supportive by our right. community and our, our country uh, to give us a lot of benefits where those guys didn't have that. No, they were and rejected. I, I appreciate the groundwork they laid to give us the freedoms and liberties that we do right now, uh, that we have right now as veterans, because if they wouldn't have done that, spoke up about uh, Agent Orange or uh, talked about, you know, their PTSD stories in Vietnam, they laid all the groundwork to make us comfortable where we are today. And so what I do is I focus a lot on pulling from any demographic in there we have disabled vests that don't have hands, don't have legs, arms, stuff like that. We negotiate that because employers are scared. Employers are scared to say, hey, sorry, I have to get a reasonable accommodation. What does a reasonable accommodation mean for someone that is blind, that is deaf, that is missing a hand? Employers are so scared of even addressing that that they just don't address it. So being an agency, a third party to that, I break down a lot of that saying, yeah, this guy's missing a hand, but he has to push one button. Good thing he has another hand to push a button, you know, because they're so terrified of, of, of getting shut down or getting fined for, for not dealing with that. So what we do is we say, hey, what jobs can this person perform? Where can we put them? And we find those companies. I have a company right now that said, look, uh, I, need, I need people to come in that are going to be nice to people. They're going to talk on the phone. I'll give them a headset. It doesn't matter if they have hands, legs, eyes, anything mm -hmm. like that. As long as they can talk on the phone, I'm, I'm going to hire them and mm -hmm. hire them at a reasonable wage. And some of these guys, that's all they've been looking for. They don't want to break their backs anymore. Yeah. And, and they want to move into a position where they can succeed and not kill themselves. That's pretty cool. So when you talk about the fear of an employer not making reasonable accommodations, is it because they're afraid of the expense that it would cost them? Or are they afraid of saying, no, I can't take that person on because I, it's just not part of what we do? Afraid of getting it wrong, I think, oh. is, is, is the problem is there's not enough being done to handle a lot of those disabilities to say, Hey, like, how do I handle this in human resources or as a mm -hmm. recruiter or uh, generally like that? And then it goes up the chain from what I've seen, it goes up the chain and then comes back down. Uh, yeah, we can't make that reasonable accommodation. I've seen it a couple of times where at Panasonic, when I was working there, we had, uh, 
uh, a gal that was deaf, and all she needed was a light. They just put a light on the machine, and that was it. And it was fantastic. It was easy to get through. But if I wouldn't have taken the time to actually advocate on that person's behalf, which is your job in recruiting and human resources, to make sure that you're trying to fill that position with the best person, if that person needs a little bit of help and you can make that happen, it's up to you to actually to break that down. Hmm. I, I, my brain's turning. There's things you don't think about, you know. Because, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm an employer, and um, we've had people – who have disabilities and we make accommodations. Uh, one guy really struggles to type because he, uh, he has a wrist issue, uh, too much skateboarding as it turns <laughs> out. Um, and so he handwrites all his notes and then we scan them, uh, PDF them into the client document portal, which is like, that's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, but it, it's making me wonder, like, is some of the fear driven by, well, you didn't accommodate me enough. I'm going to sue you. Yes. Is that what it or, is? Or you're going to pass on me as a candidate and then you're going to sue. Uh, then they're going to sue, sue me. Yeah. So right. like usually if, man, it's really bad. But uh, usually I've seen a lot of people that are scared to deal with issues. So they just pass them off. Uh, and in and, and recruiting and, uh, you know, in the job search right now, not a lot of people are getting feedback once they apply to somewhere or like, why not me? Uh, and that's very difficult, but I've seen that with disabilities, it extends longer because uh, they say, what? Okay. Um, uh, let me check back. I'll let you know what we can do. And then it gets to the next hierarchy and the next hierarchy. And then someone just doesn't have the time to make the decision. So it comes back down. No, we can't make that decision. Uh, or, it's tough. or how often is it? Oh, by the way, we've, we've already hired someone else. Yeah, exactly. I mm-hmm. filled the position. And usually I feel like it's passing the buck. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas what we do here is we're constant. Man, I take that as a challenge. Challenge accepted. Let me find this person a position right. and, 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 and try my hardest to make sure that this person gets a job, a meaningful job uh, with an employer that's going to value them. How often do you find uh, it's not necessarily a disability, but an accommodation for um, language barrier? That's tough. I, I feel like that's actually a lot more accommodating than having a physical disability. Interesting. So what, what happens in that case? Uh, typically, they get through and then you get put on a line. Usually, they try to put you into a department where someone is a Spanish speaker or speaks a second language uh, to make that happen. But uh, And I think we have grown a lot more as a country to accept that, whereas still disabilities are on the table uh, and very difficult to hire for. And while we're on the topic of disabilities, uh, it may not be a disability per se, but we've discussed PTSD in the past and other forms of mental illness. And this is a mental health podcast, so we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss it. How often are you encountering veterans who need work, could reasonably work, and have a mental illness on board for which they're probably getting treatment? Because if you're involved in their life, you probably hooked them up with you know some resource or another. And their employers don't want them because of that. Yeah, I, it's tough to, to really show the data behind that. Uh, honestly, I know from my own firsthand experiences more uh, than placing someone because uh, it just doesn't get brought up. And I still think a lot of people are not seeking help mm. uh, enough to actually say, hey, yeah, look, I suffer from anxiety. I need you know a day off a month to go spend time with my family or to just wind down or I need uh, to leave work an hour earlier. Like I can't do a full eight hours. I need to do seven hours or six hours. Uh, I feel like that has, has grown, but is still like a, 
underworld culture that no one wants to really talk about because people are still scared to address it. I know for myself, I was scared to address it because I was going into work with anxiety and it made it very difficult to function. And I just played it off like, you know, I'm just stressed out. What was the turning point for you when you decided that you were going to go get help? Like what, what flipped that switch? Really is just, I couldn't, I couldn't function. I'd come into the workplace, I'd get in there at nine o'clock and keep it together enough to make it to 11 o'clock. And then at 11 o'clock, I'm like, well, if I can just make it to 12 o'clock, I can go get lunch and at least take a break from all this because there was a lot more involved where they're put applying a lot of pressure to me as a leader to uh, make people perform, which we were performing at the, the top level that you possibly could perform is just unrealistic expectations. Mm. Uh, but then when I realized how debilitating it was when I'm like counting the minutes to go to lunch so that I can get out and just breathe. That's when I I said to myself, something's got to change. And it was very tough. I couldn't bring, I was was still too scared to bring it to my employer's attention because I didn't want to be labeled as the crazy veteran or, you know, the guy that has anxiety or, you know, strip me from a leadership position because I was still leading people and still, working hard there but just white knuckling it through it was tough man it really was and white knuckling would probably be the best way to describe it and then i was like i can't do it anymore you know i want to help veterans i think i could run my own company and make the changes necessary and that's when i jumped ship i jumped ship and said i've got this i'm going to do it i was terrified but at the end of the day what was i going to do show up to work and just completely be stressed out yeah (laughs) and then when i'm getting home i'm exhausted couldn't spend time with my family because all my adrenaline had been pumping all day long that when i got home i had to crash yeah we hear a lot about this like uh in our profession it's called compassion fatigue which i think is a terrible name and it doesn't even make sense like we get tired of being compassionate it's, it's stupid um but what it means is like you basically burned yourself out listening to other people's horror stories and you didn't know how to separate and leave work at work now other people call that burnout you're working too hard you're investing too much um and then there's another version i just heard of called um uh, more moral injury where your own ethics and morals are pitted against that of your employer and they're not compatible and you're finding yourself at odds and that wears you out psychologically. Um, and what you're describing is, is something of a mix where you're like, I know inside me who I am. I, this isn't right. I'm full of anxiety for whatever reasons. It could be internal pressures. It could be external pressures, but either way, what it does is it wears your body down. So that when you get home, like you described, you have no, no energy left and then you're not being, you know, present or available for your family or whatever it is, your hobbies. Um, if you're not in a family situation, you're single or whatever. Um, and, and if you're listening to this and you're going through it or you're listening, and you know, somebody's going through it and you can recognize it. I think it's important to acknowledge that and say, Hey, like, um, I listen to this podcast. You should listen to it, by the way. <laughs> um, share, share podcast. But um, also, like, take the time to validate that for the person and say, hey, you know, it, it seems like work's really wearing on you. And then maybe that opens a conversation. Go, well, it's actually not work. It's this other thing. Um, so what was your what was your path to, to recovery? What did that look like? And how did you finally, because it sounds like you had an awareness. You're like, this isn't, this isn't normal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but you're still full of like self-judgment, if that, yeah. if I can say that. Um, what did it look like when you finally were like, all right, I need to get help. Help needs to look like X, Y, and Z. Uh, and then finally you, you you disengaged from Panasonic and formed your own company, which is terrifying, I will agree. <laughs> it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, 
what, describe for for our audience how that how that kind of unfolded so that's not so mysterious yeah so they ended up putting me on blood pressure medication to help because my blood pressure was skyrocketing at so you the went time. where to your primary physician yeah. first uh yeah and then they uh i i was going through the va and so they put okay. me on blood pressure medication and i said you know i think this is messing me up you know and, and you knew that wasn't it yeah and <laughs> i was like man i think this is messing me up and then uh i was like you know, can I come off the, the medication? And they're like, no, just keep taking it. It takes a while to work. Uh, started taking the, kept taking the medication, kept taking the medication. I, finally, I was like, it's got to be the medication. Cut the medication out. They put me on antidepressants. Uh, I was taking the antidepressants. They're like, it just takes 30 days to 60 days to start working. So you just got to believe it. Did that so, have the opposite effect? It was tough for me, man. I had never been depressed in my entire life until I started taking antidepressants. Right. And then I started worrying about like, how is this going to affect me? Like, over time, I didn't, I, like, it had been years since I had, you know, not gone outside or gone on hikes. I was usually out in the woods or hiking or fishing every weekend, if not every other weekend. I completely uh, separated from that and was just taking the antidepressants. I, I was still battling anxiety, started the new company. It was tough, but it was like there was hope there that I can change it and I could take care of myself and give myself that time away when I needed it. That helped. Honestly, uh, the antidepressants were hard for me. Uh, I just, I ended up one day, I remember I started uh, thinking to myself, like, how is this affecting me? And I think, I still think that, the, you know, the medication is good for some, but not for all. I don't think it's a one. You got to get the right one. You weren't <laughs> depressed. You were anxious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so they put me on the antidepressants and they're, well, I went back to the VA and they said, well, why are you taking heart, or why are you still taking it? I said, well, you told me to keep taking it. So I just kept <laughs> taking it. So I finally separated from that. Then they put me on the antidepressants. Uh, antidepressants like made me depressed. Uh, and it was really tough for me to, to go through that. And then finally one day I said, I'm done. I'm not taking the antidepressants anymore. Uh, quit cold turkey, uh, which I do not suggest anyone don't, ever do. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> I just w didn't feel comfortable talking about it with my doctor because I felt like he was going to keep me on it. Went through the brain zaps, you know, like the like shock feelings throughout my body after I started coming mm -hmm. off it and withdrawing from it. And I was like, man, this is terrible. I'm going to go back on it. And I didn't. I just held out. Uh, and then one day I woke up and felt energy again that I hadn't had in almost a year. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go for a hike. Went for a short hike, just got out and walked. Uh, next week I went for a longer hike and then went for a longer hike and then went for a longer hike. And I was like, man, it's actually getting better. Like, uh, yeah. uh, I'm getting more blood to my organs and my muscles and I'm now starting to change a lot of things. And then all of a sudden it just started to glide and life completely changed within, I would say three, four months, but it took a while and it took a lot of adjustments and fear and panic. Uh, but I eventually was able to adjust to it. And then, uh, it was able to to really readjust my life, start spending time with my family. Uh, and I don't think it was just the antidepressants. I think it was all the anxiety ahead of time leading into the – honestly, if I was going to blame a drug, is the blood pressure medication because <laughs> it was dropping my uh, my oxygen levels to my brain and my, my limbs at uh. night uh, further than it needed to be. Uh, and then I just got away from that as a whole. I, I, I haven't taken a pill or anything like that in a couple years now. And literally – if I'm getting stressed out, I go up to Tahoe or I go for a walk, um, jumping into Lake Tahoe when it's freezing cold completely changes. Uh, I, I've listened to a lot of just different things and, and, uh, ways to deal with uh, anxiety. And that's honestly the best one getting out, 
shutting everything off, removing myself from my phone, Instagram, you know, social media for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and it's helped me live a, a more happy and fulfilled life, I'd say. What do you do for exercise? Is it just the hikes or are you still doing like Oh, no. Workouts? Yeah, now I'm able to. I, I couldn't work out. I, I was a creature of habit for years working out every morning. And then when all that hit, I just shut that down because I just couldn't. I was so tired all the time. But I started working out again, lifting weights and lifting heavy again. I found CrossFit actually, which helped a lot um, because it's tough. It's something that's super tough, but it helped me bring that uh, to knock out the first thing in the morning. I'm mm. a very, very much. A, I work out every morning. It helped uh, kickstart my recovery, I would say. And because you're a kid of the 80s and I'm a kid of, or of the 90s and I'm a kid of the 80s, <laughs> uh, I don't understand CrossFit. But as I understand it, um, you compete against yourself. Right. So, so is that, is that true? Like you're, you're continually aiming for personal bests and that kind of thing in the various exercises all the time. Uh, yeah, you're, I feel like I don't, I compete with myself uh, a lot. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Anyway possible. I just love competition. I mm -hmm. think competition is something that you need, especially if you're an athlete and you're transitioning yeah. anywhere, you have to find competition somewhere in your life. We're just those type of people that we want to win, Yeah. you know, and, 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 I think uh, CrossFit brought that to me, which was really cool. Uh, but I like competing against other people, seeing where I'm at, challenging them, and then in that group, figuring out like how to challenge each other. And then you almost own that. You say, "Hey, how are you doing today? I'm going to do better than that." It's almost yeah. you're you you're competing constantly. Does that fulfill the adrenaline? Oh yeah, that's that's helped there a lot. Go. And actually, I never thought about that until you just said that. Cool. It really does. Uh, Switching gears into whoobies because it's uh, a nice dovetail. The exercise, the outdoors, the experience. We should spell whoobies, by the way. It's uh, W O O B I E S. Yes, dot org. <laughs> and if you uh, if you could explain why that name was chosen. So uh, a whoobie is a military blanket that we get. It's the one comfort item you get in the military. Like usually, <clears throat> you're sleeping on the ground, or you know, may have a sleeping bag, but your whoobie. If it's cold, it keeps you warm. If it's hot, it keeps you cool. Like I, it's a magic blanket. I don't know how to describe it any other way. If you're a veteran, you know exactly why. Uh, but it's such a comforting thing. And we wanted to bring that comfort back to people's lives whenever they transitioned. And so it's a powerful tool that we had and a powerful uh, icon that we use for people to resonate like, oh, that's comfort. And that's what we want to be. Comfort folks that are trying to look for comfort right now and then show them everything we just talked about. Show them this is my path to recovery. This is how I help myself. You know, you can do these things. And I think outdoor therapy as a whole is completely changing the way uh, we go about, uh, you know, fixing ourselves. Why is it called a whoopee? You know? I'm not sure. Whoopie blanket, I think, yeah. was you know a baby blanket is yeah. what they used to call it back it's in the day. Whoopie. So yeah. through Vietnam, I'm sure someone called it a whoopie. And it know. stuck. Yeah, and it just stuck. So what's Whoopies United doing? So Whoopies United is pulling folks out of isolation, getting them back in the folds of community. How do you then, find them? Uh, typically through Instagram, honestly, uh, social media, putting like, if you're isolating, like how do you, like, usually, you know? usually most people have some form of social media. So mm -hmm. they find us from one Facebook or, uh, uh, Instagram, anything like that. They usually find us. And honestly, I constantly add people on there, go and follow other people so that they know about us because there's a ton of veteran nonprofits out there. Everyone's doing something different from one another. This is the one way that we can give back. And, you know, by taking you outdoors, leading most people, I know a lot of veterans that get out of the military and never hunted. I was that guy had never gone on a hunt, you know, 
you hunted humans and then you've never hunted an animal That's before. Weird. You grew up in Nevada and you never hunted? Just, I was, I was, you lived in a, uh, you know, I mean, in Fernley, I grew up in Hawthorne, Nevada, actually. Like the, oh. yeah, I, uh, born and raised out there. Basically, all you had was, uh, sports. Um, uh, some people hunt out there and stuff, but, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with a father. I didn't really have that transition. And then when I left the military, I said, I'm going to do that, you know, and I, I put my mind to it. Um, but what Whoopies does, not even just hunting. Some people, you know, don't like to hunt for one one of many reasons. Sure. I think, uh, you know, seeing where your food comes from is fantastic. And, and being out there gives you that sense of excitement. But also being able to just go out and hike. A lot of people have never known what hiking gear to buy. Like outside of the military, you were given everything and you were told, hey, go walk 20 miles that way. Mm-hmm. And it's not fun. It's not like I'm going out and having a boys trip in the mountains. No, but when you get out... And you could go on a long leg. We did uh, the Sierra Buttes uh, recently. It was about 12 miles. It was brutal. Got all the way up, all the way down. We camped. Maybe had a little bit of whiskey, you know, talked, Maybe. you know, just just a little bit about, uh, you know, what it was like. And just being able to get back into that fold of the community, go do something that's extraneous on your body, and then come back and talk about it and talk about, oh, man, it sucked when we were you know, dropping 3000 feet and then coming back up 3000 feet immediately, you go through something together and it builds a bond and to, to solidify that bond and pull people back into the folds and say, Hey, yeah, I'm part of this community that does this. They reach out to their friends and it grows. How many people were talking? Uh, typically we'll, we'll do small groups, five to six people. Um, we're setting up another one at the ranch. We have a ranch up in, uh, Northern Nevada by jackpot, uh, the cottonwood ranch that we work with. They have, I don't know, 60, 70, you know, horses out there. They teach us to saddle up. We run cattle out there, which is beautiful. When you're on a horse, pushing cattle to go feed them and then, you know, nurturing them, coming back down. And then at the end of the day, go have a big old steak and some whiskey. Yeah, oh, man, it's a good time. That sounds amazing. I, I need to join you on that. Yeah. Uh, what's the what's the male female ratio? Do you get females out? There? We have a lot more females coming in. When it first started, it was of course me generating it through social media, building a lot of the stuff, and learning. Uh, and I started getting responses like, "Can women go? Can females go?" I'm like, yeah, it's for yeah. everyone. Yeah, but why wouldn't you? <laughs> me coming from combat, like I just knew how to direct and attract people that were in the same areas. We uh, ended up hiring Beth, uh, who's been fantastic on social media. She runs all of our social media, and she's pulled so many more women into into what we do. And now they're pushing and saying, like, hey, yeah, I want to be part of this community. We love it. We built out an ambassador program. So now if you just want to be, like, help lead hikes or you have somewhere you want to go, maybe take five or six people with you. Show them, navigate the way. We'll give you some stickers, some shirts, stuff like that. It's awesome. So you're not doing it yourself all the time you've you've uh, delegated some of this stuff and it's it's growing is what it sounds like yeah so a lot of it has been you know running a business running a family going to school full-time all that I've been just beating myself up so I had to figure out a way to expand this and pull people in uh, and so we've been able to do that with our ambassador program and say hey you know you're in charge of an event and being able to do that has helped us grow and you know, you bring a lot more diversity to what we're doing, especially, you know, uh, between women and men and people that have LGBTQ community. Like we want everyone to be a part of it and understand that we're not here to stereotype who is a hunter, who's like can do that stuff. We want everyone to join us, see if it's for them. And honestly, I think it's for everyone just being outdoors. Well, I mean, outdoors, nature connecting, you know, just, just being in the presence of, of God and, you know, 
family and community is is so powerful and, and invigorating that you don't want to artificially shut doors based on stereotypes. It yeah. doesn't even make sense. Yeah, I want it. Um, are you finding that people are stereotyping themselves at all? Like, oh, that's not for me, and I, you have I, to like. Coax I don't think them so. I think the hunting side, uh, but we're mm. like, hey, we have hiking. You know, mm, like okay. go out, we'll, we'll plot the map for you. We're talking about doing a treasure hunt soon where we Ooh. go leave out some, uh, some Pirate buried booty. treasure and you have to, you know, go find a map in order to, you know, very yeah. national treasury, you That's know, cool. uh, especially right now we got to get people out of their houses and, yes. you know, out into the great outdoors to help them deal with some of the crap that's going on right now. Are you guys, uh, anywhere but Nevada? Uh, right now we're based in Nevada. We do have, uh, like Canyon land trips out in Utah, uh, anywhere, you know, out there that you want to go, we, let's build a trip around it. You want to go kayaking or canoeing in California? Uh, we'll do that. But, uh, right now, most of our events take place either here in Nevada or out in Utah. I've heard of people who have listened to this show and, uh, listened to our guests and decided to, um, form, uh, branch organizations based on what some of the guests have said. If somebody were to reach out to you and said, Hey, I live in Kentucky or Rhode Island or whatever. Um, and I want to do what you're doing. How might they do that and maintain fidelity to the, to the project? Yeah. So that's our ambassador program. So if you want to be an ambassador, you want to, uh, you know, we will support that. So we try to pull the funding, pool all the funding together. And then if we have an ambassador that says, Hey, we need t-shirts or, Hey, we need something here, or we need someone to pay for parking passes or whatever. Uh, that's what we fund. We get it out to them. So if you have someone in Texas that says, uh, for example, Jack's out in Texas, Mm -hmm. he's like, Hey, we're going to go do, you know, go hunt some hogs out here. Let us pay for it. Get them out there. You just, you just deal with the logistics and getting the people and get them out there and we'll support you. This is free to the participants. Yes. All of it. All of it. How do you get your funding? Uh, right now, it's just through uh, private donations, and uh, we actually have a raffle coming up. We're raffling off a two-night stay in Tahoe uh, that came out of the meeting uh, this month. Uh, we're going to raffle off a two-night stay up in Tahoe at uh, a hotel up there, so you can go and bring your family up. Go, you know, everyone's looking for a reason to get out of the house. Yeah. Uh, that could be one. Uh, and then we have, you know, I think we are raffling off a shotgun and then treasure hunt stuff like that to engage people. How can people support you if they want to donate? Yeah, if you go to whoobiesunited.com, uh, go onto our webpage. Uh, you can actually, uh, there's a donate tab. Go ahead and click and donate. Uh, that'd be fantastic. All the proceeds just go straight. We don't make any money off of this. I don't get paid for this. Uh, literally, money goes into buying shirts or buying new swag or uh, paying directly for some veterans to fly out or to uh uh, go to the ranch, stuff like that, so we can uh, feed them, house them, clothe them uh, with anything they need. We have a lot of, like, REI has worked with us. Uh, they have given us uh, really great rates on rentals for backpacks, tents, stuff like that, snowshoes, uh, the works. So you guys will take in-kind donations, too, from Oh, yeah, absolutely. Can... Okay, um, and you're flying people out or paying for travel yeah we've done that a couple times now but it's it's fairly expensive uh we're yeah. trying to do that for like platoon reunions get the guys and gals mm. that you deployed wow, with cool bring them all together let's get out and have a good time that way you guys can talk through those experiences so these guys and gals aren't just from northern nevada they're from all over all over the place yeah wow that's yeah. super cool yeah so i i linked up with a, another uh nonprofit that we're starting to gain traction with but uh their entire nonprofit model is pay for flights 
And uh, we're working that right now as we speak uh, to get uh, funding just to pay for flights to get veterans to and from and connect them again. Is there an opportunity for grants like federal funding, state funding, that kind of thing that I, I don't know how that world works necessarily with what you're doing? Honestly, like the VA is coming out with, uh, I can't remember, it's like HR. 1234, 1234, 1235, something crazy like that for outdoor therapy uh, because it's a huge mental health is a huge burden on the VA system, Uh, you know, paying for medication and paying for therapists and whatnot. Uh, I think it's $2.1 billion right now uh, that, uh, you know, that funding goes into where they have now uh, had this uh, new regulation that came out where they're trying to put more money towards outdoor therapy. And honestly, we're one of the leading ones uh, on that. Mm. And we're trying to be uh, to pull data and, and, and give back showing that it works. So you would qualify even if you don't have a practitioner, you know, licensed person on board, you, yeah. you can still apply for those funds. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, but we, we want to maintain because uh, I think there's for professionals like yourself, we need your experience and your advice. Uh, we kind of lead the narrative like, hey, what are we going to talk about? But we want to check in and have someone that has experience mm-hmm. and an education in it say, hey, you, maybe these are the questions you should ask. Maybe these are better questions to ask. Or how do you capture that information? I think it's important to do that well without um, having the obstacle of diagnosis yeah. too, right? So you don't just take a certain demographic that has to meet the criteria of being diagnosed with mental illness in order to qualify for this this program, I think that acts as a barrier to, to opportunity and care. I think doing it the, the way that you're doing it uh, and then just inviting people like myself to come along and you know, like tag along, not make the program centered on me because yeah. that's disingenuous to the process. Yeah. I think that's a better way of doing it. I hope to have more conversations about that because I know you and I run in some of the same circles as far as that's concerned. And um, hopefully we can, bring more uh, help to the people who need it in the non-traditional ways that you're bringing it. Because uh, we clearly know it works. We just yeah. need to track it now yeah. and provide those data yeah. so that we can get sustained funding. Exactly. That's awesome. Um, I really appreciate your time. I want to, uh, you know, honor the rest of your day and not tie you up. What, what do we, uh, what do we close with? We always try to close with some exhortation or a takeaway of some kind. So, okay. Um, what's, what's one thing you might tell the listening audience? Talk about it. Like, uh, it was really hard for me getting out of the military to actually discuss the things that happened. And I'm still not comfortable talking about certain aspects of it. Cause some of it, I'm like, you know, people are going to think I'm weird because I had to go through that and that's really tough, but, uh, at least take the time to go find some help. Uh, even man, I went in to go find help. I found help and then I found it helpful to go back to just talk to someone else that is unbiased in my life. You know, I love talking with my friends and stuff. They give me one direction, but to have someone completely separated from your life to say, Hey man, you're not crazy for thinking that way. Or Hey man, like people have felt that way and it's okay to feel that way, but you can fix it. I think that's so important at least to just start a conversation around and talk through it because uh, a lot of things I can't talk to my wife about it. I can't talk to my kids about it. You know, like that's, that's tough, but uh, find someone that you trust, uh, talk to them. And if, you know, if you can get in and find some help somewhere and it's not help, like, uh, you know, I'm going to kill myself. I didn't feel that way at all. I mm-hmm. felt like, man, why do I not feel love anymore? And why right. do I not feel fear anymore? And now that all those emotions started coming back, it makes you feel grounded as a human being Absolutely. and you're not completely isolated from everyone else. Absolutely. Uh, once again, we'll be United.com. 
I think I t- just teasingly said org on there earlier, but yeah, it's it should be. But <laughs> W O O B I E S United dot com. And uh, what's what's alpha uh, alpha hyphen roster dot com. If you're looking hyphen. for a job or your business looking to uh, employ veterans, uh, go to alpha hyphen roster dot com uh, and we'll get back to you. Awesome. Well, thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. And on behalf of the Naga Notes team and the Zephyr Williams family, we all wish you great mental wellness. Uh, Take care.